hey, let's get a job. This week, we're talking freelance with... Um, I'm Forrest Klontz. Uh, I'm a photographer here in town with a focus primarily on commercial and food work. Um, and then I do a little bit of uh, wedding work in addition to that. So why did you start freelancing? Uh, it really is kind of the only way to do photography um, in Colombia. There's not agencies or uh, companies that I'm aware of that would hire a full-time photographer. So uh, that's just kind of the only way, the only choice I had, I think. Do you think that um, in it, that's due to the market size? Like, do you think in a bigger city you'd be able to uh, have a staff job or is that a concern of yours? Uh, not a concern of mine. I mean, I think it's possible to get a staff job. I don't know if I would necessarily want one. Hmm. Um, you know, in, in hindsight, I think when I was younger, I was uh, kind of looking for like if someone would just hire me to do photography, that would be great. But uh, being my own boss, coming coming uh, from being a pretty creative person, uh, it's nice to kind of be able to self-direct, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, that absolutely makes um, sense. Um, when, as far as being um, your own self-boss and the, free, the freedom that you have with that, um, how do you how do you manage that? Like it's it's uh, I'm totally gonna jump around the questions. By the way, I hope yeah, sure. that. okay, cool. Um, how do you how do you manage that? That seems like uh, an awful lot. I mean, basically, you are your own boss, right? Uh, I mean, it can be tough. I feel like uh, it being client based work maybe helps a little bit with that, and that the client needs kind of dictate my focus and my schedule and where it needs to be. Uh, you know, I try to set expectations for what's realistic as far as turnaround times. Uh, so we kind of know going ahead into it that somebody's not thinking they're getting something the next day, um, but they were working towards those end goals. And uh, so I let my workflow kind of fit into that and having those deadlines and or uh, contract agreements that I know I have to meet helps keep me on, on track. Because uh, I think without that, I uh, have a tendency to be a little bit all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so help keep me uh, focused. Um, the hard part I think for me is the, the more business side of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Cause there's no one that's making me send out invoices or get any of that stuff done, but uh, it's hard to stay in business if you don't. Sure. Sure. All right. Let me unpack all of that right there. Okay. Um, okay. So first off, uh, you're driven by, uh, by clients deadlines. How do you, how do you typically find clients? Uh, I would say at this point, probably 80 to 90 percent of my work is um, existing clients and word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's people that I've worked with who will throw my name out there to other places. Um, I do keep uh, a website and a little bit of social media presence, but it's mostly for me has operated as a tool for people to verify that I'm a real individual. <laughs> sure. Um, um, but a lot of it comes through like an email of like, oh, I got your name through so-and-so and that you might be the right person for this. And then from that point, I try to do my best to uh, either meet those expectations or direct them to uh, another creative that might be better suited for that project if it's not right for me. Right. That does seem like a, a little bit of a catch-22, though. So if 80% of your work comes from uh, word of mouth and current clients or previous mm-hmm. clients, um, that means you have to have clients or word of mouth uh, visibility basically in order right. to get that. So how did you start off doing that? Uh, well, I was looking at your questions and I was trying to think about how I actually got my first clients. 
Yeah, because usually I feel like freelance just kind of happens. All of a sudden you're like, well, I guess yeah. I'm a freelancer. Right. Yeah. Um, when I started, my sole focus was purely on weddings. Mm -hmm. um, and so I did the first wedding I did was for like, I think the friend of one of my mom's coworkers. Okay. And this was 2011, almost a decade ago now. Yeah. Um, and I was smart enough at the time to realize that her time of day for the wedding was not going to be, this would be one of our good failure stories too, <laughs> um, was, was not ideal and that I did not have the equipment to get it. And she wanted a deal. And so I told her up front, I said, um, you know, I'm not equipped to do, it was one of those November weddings where the sun set at five, but they yeah. didn't want to do photos early. So everything was going to be after dark. And I was like, I don't have lights. I don't have the gear to do this. Do you want me to rent anything? And she said, no, we'll just make it work. Um, and it ended up all things said and done. I think I did a pretty good job considering the limitations, but we had a few of the family photos where, um, kids didn't stand still that were a little bit blurry, even with the flashes that I used. Mm -hmm. So we ended up going round and round about her being unhappy with it. And I had to uh, diplomatically resend old emails about where I had spelled out these things before. <laughs> and I think at that point, after that wedding, it was such a negative experience that I was like, I don't know if I'll ever do this again. And about a year later, the coworker of my mom, who was the original uh, connection, said, I want you to photograph my wedding. And I was mm. like, well you were there for all that. So if you still want to do it, we'll do it. <laughs> sure. And uh, that one went much better, much smoother. Um, and from there I ended up jumping into trying to add on features to our wedding packages, like photo booths at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and the photo booth ended up landing me work for other events. Um, one in particular was a fundraiser for spring Valley high school with a, a small up and coming uh, PR firm called flock and rally. Tiny little firm, sure. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that small firm has turned into a much bigger firm over the last decade. And so that one little job has turned into a, a large portion of my work and continuing to do well for them has led me to work for companies like Motor Supply Company, uh, Experience Columbia. So I get to do a lot of stuff for uh, the Visitation Tourism Board for Columbia. Um, so those kind of that one little thing at the beginning kind of trickled into a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. So with that first uh, wedding client, did you have a contract with them or was that more like a handshake deal or? Uh, it was kind of a handshake, very like lots of communication through email where things were, were uh, spelled out pretty specifically. But yeah, no contract at that point. Wasn't that smart? <laughs> yeah. Uh, was that the uh, the client that where you were like, all right, let me learn what these contracts are? Uh, you know, I just, I don't think I quite learned my lesson on that one. I don't think I ever had one that made me learn that lesson, but I did get my act together before I ever needed one. Mm -hmm. so. <laughs> so, uh, basically as a recommendation, then, uh, do you do any work outside of contracts anymore? Uh, I have a couple of long standing clients that I have worked for, for years and years and years and have a more of a personal relationship mm -hmm. that I'm happy to do that with, but. Um, I don't do any other work with anybody that I don't have some written agreements with going into it. Sure. Um, as some of the students have asked me about the contracts and they're nervous in general about uh, the, I guess, the assumption that if they're giving somebody a contract that there could be some sort of uh, faux pas with, with that, uh, should they worry about that at all? Uh, I think you definitely need to pay attention to it. And I say that not as a, a photographer, but as someone who knows that I just don't know everything 
So I would be wary of just downloading a contract from anywhere online and going to use that, which I think can be tempting. But um, for photographers, I know, and I'm not sure about other fields, there are several good um, websites that kind of cater to photographers and helping them get the right contracts. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the one I am most familiar with is the lawtographer, who is a lawyer turned photographer. So he kind of combined those two roles. Um, but even then, you still run into issues where uh, a general contract may not be worded appropriately for your state or your jurisdiction. Yeah. So and find somebody to look over that for you. I think it's probably beneficial, but uh, I think it would be better to go with a, a generic contract than no contract. I think you're more likely to run into um, into issues from not having a contract at all than you would be from I don't know not having the wording exactly right on one. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Do you find that um, a generic contract versus a specific contract have like? I would imagine that a generic contract, just giving somebody a contract, they're like, oh, shit, this is serious. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, uh, is that the experience you're having as well? Uh, yeah. And, you know, it kind of depends on who you're dealing with. I think I deal with a lot of smaller businesses, and I think sometimes it can be like, a, oh, okay, hang on. I didn't know we were we were this serious. Um, I think it helps you kind of convey a sense of professionalism mm-hmm. and that prepared and that you've done the legwork to make sure you know what you're getting into. Yeah. Yeah. From a, from a creative standpoint, I think it also helps you make sure that you and your client are both on the same page about what's expected and what's going to be delivered mm-hmm. because you can run into, you know, issues where they thought they were getting a hundred photos, but if you're having to, to do post-processing on hundred photos versus 25 photos. That's a right. huge investment in time. Right. So you're saying your contracts aren't just listing, um, kind of the liability type stuff or the agreement, but it's also kind of a statement of work, like right. itemizing exactly what's going to be on the paper. Right. Yeah. Um, what about, um, this is kind of a way more personal question, but this is a question that every, every beginning freelancer wants to know. Um, how do you know what to charge people? Uh, I would say that I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> it's just a, a constant, constant figuring out throughout the year. Uh, it is. And then it's also um, trying to figure out like as you do new things and as you grow your skill set and as um, more experiences kind of change the way you do your work mm-hmm. and build that, I think it raises the overall value of that. But you also have to recognize that not every project that you do requires, at least for me, every bit of your expertise mm. all the time. Um, so it's been an interesting balance, I think, especially for me lately doing uh, so much food work. Uh, I've been shifting, trying to shift the way that I do stuff myself, where it used to be you would shoot a restaurant and you would do interiors and staff photos, shoot the whole menu, shoot the, uh, the cocktail bar. And it would be one to two days nonstop of just all this stuff. But um, so many restaurants are seasonal or have gone to farm to table, yeah, uh, which are things that I like a lot as a consumer. But it also means that that menu changes. So a lot of restaurants are very wary to spend all of that upfront money to document something that's out of date as soon as they get it, basically. Sure. I assume you're battling at that point some somebody on the wait staff who's got a nice iPhone that can just shoot it and post it on their digital right away? Uh, kind of, sort of. I think the the people who were okay with that weren't looking for like a top quality image to begin with and are not the kind of clients that I want to work with. Yeah. Uh, this is a really interesting uh, way you're putting it because 
Um, I think people who start freelancing tend to say yes to everything because if you say no to something, like you said, like and one of your early clients led to the next one, which led to the next one, which basically set you on your path. So how do you know, like I guess where was the point where you started learning to say no to a certain client um, and like what was that like? How, how I mean that's, that's scary. Uh, I think a big part of it is getting enough work that you're not so hungry that you want everything. Mm -hmm. I still want as much as I can get and I still want to grow. But if I don't get everything that comes my way, I'll still be able to pay my bills. Mm -hmm. And that's a very uh, powerful feeling to have in your back pocket when you're negotiating with people. Um, But I think sometimes you just know if you, if you figure out what you think you're worth and people aren't willing to pay that, then those are not the people you need to be, you're not going to gain a whole lot by either arm wrestling them to convince them that you're worth it mm-hmm. or lowering your price to try to get to a point where they're happy. Uh, I think the more, the more I do this, the more clients that I deal with that are purely price focused mm. all tend to be the ones that demand the most handholding, um, expect the most on the other end Yeah, right now are the hardest to please. So you end up, cutting them a deal and then doing twice the work you would have done for a regular client. And I think at the end of the day, the work ends up not being as good anyway. Yeah. No, I a hundred percent agree with that. With, um, you said that you were, there becomes a point where you determine the value of your own, um, of your own thing where the value, uh, comes from figuring out basically what you can live on. Um, is there, do you find that there's a, a specific way of thinking about that or is it basically just, doing math on what you, what bills you have to pay? Uh, I mean, you could look at it that way. I think it's one of those cases where professional associations become very uh, valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, I spend a lot of time with the ASMP, American Society of Media Photographers, okay. which has good tools on kind of um, pricing info that kind of gives for me like a, a, a base level to work from. Um, so that I'm not just going in blind and just throwing out numbers on what I think things are worth. Yeah. Uh, so I think for in, any industry, looking to those professional associations that have the the genuine interests of their members in mind and are not just uh, money-making entities on their own um, mm-hmm. can be very valuable. Um, all right. So let's, uh, let's keep talking about clients in general. Um, okay. So what happens if you're having a difficult client, uh, you determine your value, you guys have signed a contract and they just decide not to pay. What, uh, have you experienced that? Uh, I have one that I'm working through right now. Yeah. Oh man. What's going on? Uh, just, uh, one of the similar things where I had someone who asked for uh, a little bit of work, talked about the work that their previous photographer had done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sent a quote, everything looked good, sent them files, everything looked good, files went up on their website. Um, and then there was a question about like, when are you coming out to do this other part? Um, and I said, that was never part of my <laughs> quote. Yeah. And they said, oh, well, the last photographer did it. Um, and I said, okay, I understand that, but uh, that was not part of our um, agreement. And so we actually got to a point where um, – it was just 360 photos yeah. for, uh, for Google Maps, um, and I offered to come in 
um, just to clear up any misunderstanding. I'm kind of in the mindset where I would rather uh, exceed someone's expectations and go a little bit further mm-hmm. um, than just kind of cut anybody off as long as I don't think they're trying to take it too much advantage of me. Yeah. Um, so I was willing to go back out and just do that because I knew it was probably only taking me about 30 minutes and I thought that would be easier than uh, arguing back and forth about what was guaranteed and what wasn't and that would hopefully get me um, a client that would then uh, speak for me in the uh, say, hang on, would be more of an advocate for me for yeah. other people because sure. I had gone kind of above and beyond. Um, uh, that ended up not being the case uh, because of the way they work on Google is that they live on Google and they wanted the files for some reason. I was like, I can't give you the files, and so they went radio silent. <laughs> um, so. Um, I've been paid for for half of that because I usually do like a like a retainer or deposit on most of my contract work. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be nice to be paid for the rest of that, especially after having um, done that. So we'll try some general communication stuff beforehand. It's one of those jobs that's probably not big enough to warrant any sort of uh, legal action. Um, that's yeah. just not worth the energy in my mindset. But um, we'll still try to get paid. Yeah. Do you find that it is more of the small-time hand-holding clients that are more of a danger of not paying than the bigger clients? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So once people, uh, I guess, understand the value of what you're providing, they also understand the value of what they're paying for? Right. Exactly. Gotcha. Um, and I also think it goes back to the contract question that we talked about mm-hmm. earlier is that I, I think a lot of people who um, are maybe looking to take advantage of or kind of skirt those things you usually won't sign a contract Mm, mm -hmm. or they might be like, Oh, you know what? Let me think about that. And then you'll just never hear from them again. And that's a good way to know like, all right, well, so So what are some red flags that the, that students could look out for, um, that would kind of signify, um, this kind of toxic client? Um, I think clients who, who want to know every specific detail of your pricing, Mm -hmm. Is, is usually a pretty good red flag because usually what they want to do is find is to get you to give them a total breakout of what something is worth. Yeah. And either say, let's remove that part of it or I'll provide that part of it, mm. which on the face of it, you're like, oh yeah, sure. Um, we could do that. And that would save you a little bit of money, but it usually ends up creating more work for you to then uh, negotiate and account for what they may or may not be providing. And if right. it's up to spec for what you're uh, trying to do. Because I would imagine your price is not based on an itemized list. It's based on the general thing. So if you're creating an itemized list, you're right. kind of making it up for them. And then yeah. if they decide to nick something out, yeah. you're already doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of people don't understand, I guess, the, the mechanics of how creative uh, creative work works. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, you know, so I think you can tell right off the bat of like who's asking me a million questions that aren't necessarily relevant to um, the product or the, the the finished good we're trying to create. Right, right, that makes sense. Um, how do you handle? Uh, so you've gotten paid now at this point. Um, how do you handle taxes? How do you handle the business end of things? Um, as soon as I was able, I hired an accountant who was smarter than I was. So <laughs> yeah, that's I, my wife does the same thing. That's a <laughs> fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, I made a significant mistake earlier in mm-hmm. my career that uh, I did not realize was a big mistake until it came back um, and terrified me years later. Really? Uh, up until 
recently, there was no clarification from the SEDOR about sales tax on... Just so the students know, SEDOR is uh, South Carolina Department of Revenue? Correct, South Carolina Department of Revenue. Yeah. Uh, there was no clarity on digital files and whether or not you had to charge sales tax on oh, those. Interesting. Yeah, and that was like flying its way up through the Supreme Court too. Right, um, and they finally got clarity on that a couple years ago, but right. up until then, I figured it was... It was one of those things where you probably didn't have to charge sales tax, but I thought it'd be easier just to pay sales tax than um, have to come back and pay it later. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, I wasn't working with a professional at the time, so I thought I could, I've tried to figure things out on my own. And so I started filing my sales tax quarterly, which was not appropriate. I needed to be filing them uh, every month at the time for the way I was doing it, which led to a bunch of uh, late fees and penalties and then, uh, interest on top of those penalties. Mm -hmm. So I went back and got them all paid, but at the time there was no online system. So it was just up to kind of my memory of what I had filed <laughs> on paperwork. And I missed, I think one or two of those. And so about three or four years later, I started getting phone calls from companies in uh, Colorado saying, Hey, we'd like to help you out with your tax debt. Uh, give us all back. And I, I called one of them back just to see what was um, what was going on, and they were like, "Oh yeah, there's like a, a lean out for you for I think it was forty or forty five thousand dollars at the $45, time." Forty five thousand dollars. Oh yeah. So by now, by the time this had happened, I had begun working with an accountant. Yeah. And I called him. He said, "Don't respond to any of them. It's probably not correct." I was like, "Okay, you you just tell me what I need to do, and we'll see if we can get it fixed out." Because I was like, "There's no way I can pay that much money yeah. for anything." Yeah. Um, and so it ended up being like one or two bills. And once, so what happens is if you don't pay, which is what I had technically not done, they send you a bill based on the industry average. Mm -hmm. um, which is much higher than Columbia, South Carolina which average. Is, which is much higher than I had been doing at the time, for yeah. sure. Um, and so I think, you know, the industry average was like $25,000 or something like that. Then you throw on penalties, then you throw on four years of interest and you've got like $40,000 <laughs> and it ended up being, I think about like $623 total was what I owed, but it was, uh, it was a horrifying couple of days until that number came back. But, um, yeah, so grateful to work with people much smarter than I am now. So I don't make those mistakes anymore. Did you, um, do you operate just as a person that is being hired or did you incorporate yourself or anything like that? Uh, yeah, I filed as a LLC. Okay. Do you recommend LLCs over other things or is that just the accountant was like LLC? Uh, yeah, I recommend talking to a professional. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, what, so what are the benefits of, um, of basically incorporating yourself versus um, not? Uh, the, the main thing for me was the separation of the business assets from my personal assets, such as my home, mm. uh, dealing with things, uh, especially with wedding type situations, uh, where you're around a lot of people and a lot of things that you can't necessarily control. There's always the risk of, uh, an injury or a mistake, or, um, especially in terms of photography, like a light stand tripping someone, you know, I always try to do that as safely as I can. But right. so in addition to having insurance that covers that sort of thing, I also wanted to make sure that um, it didn't cost me my home or, um, the livelihoods of my uh, wife and children. <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate <laughs> or, that. Or my, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, no, nothing I've ever had to use, but the uh, but just in case favor feels a lot better. So, right, right. I think I think insurance was the first thing I bought, and then the next hire was an accountant once I was making enough. So yeah. Um. Okay, so uh, can you tell me about how? And I um, this is still kind of jumping around a little bit. Um, how do you? So you said you 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 briefly touched on that you're getting work now by. Um, word of mouth by previous client work and stuff like this and that you don't really use social media uh, to promote yourself in any way other than to prove that you are a human being. Mm -hmm. um, what do you recommend for, so for these students, a lot of them are, you know, there's a huge trend in the 365 posts, you know, uh, post a day type thing, mm -hmm. daily, daily mm -hmm. image, daily a piece of art. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think you just got to find what works for you um, and what works for for your field and for your specific type of creativity. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really easy to get caught up in trying to chase the the algorithm, for lack of a better term. Sure, yeah. Especially in something like um, like Instagram is probably the biggest one right now for for visual people for photographers, um, but so much of that is based on um, you know the quote aesthetic, right? Uh, which is not something I've ever been drawn to. Um, but you spend more time trying to create something that that pleases that algorithm, which really likes a very cohesive, uh, very. I would almost say monotone creativity where it's like all the same stuff all the time, all yeah. the same look, um, which for me is not gratifying. Um, I don't want my work to look like it's from 800 different people, but it's not always going to be um, crisp, white, bright and airy or always on a dark background. Um, so I can find, I find getting pulled into that can be a little bit limiting uh, and muting in your creativity. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think um, they're really powerful community tools, which is um, what I think is probably the most beneficial to creatives is kind of building a community of people that you uh, can trust and network with and kind of share ideas with or be inspired by. Um, but in that same token, uh, your personal network is probably where most of your connections and business connections are going to come from to help get you started. Yeah. Um, and get to a point where you are almost uh, commanding of attention. Hmm. You you said something interesting that I really want you to kind of elaborate on a little bit is you said that there is uh, that you don't follow the aesthetic. Um, what what do you uh, do you have a personal aesthetic? Um, I would say I'm probably still chasing it, hmm. uh, trying to figure out kind of where that is. I spend a lot of time doing any and all kinds of photography that I can get hired for. Mm -hmm. And over the time that's slowly more settled into uh, a heavier focus on food work. Right. And then also from that, a lot of um, magazine work with uh, commercial clients and small businesses. Um, but to that end, a lot of that work is going to be dictated by a creative director yeah. or trying to fit the, uh, the brand and style of the businesses that I'm working with. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not necessarily important that I'd be able to show that I can do anything and everything, but I need to be able to, to produce a, a consistent product, uh, and be able to, uh, meet the specifications of somebody else. Um, so if I show that yeah. I only do the same thing 
you know, right over and over. Um, I'm only going to get hired by uh, brands or companies that that specific look works for. Yeah, I was going to say there are there's definitely people who have who like are are hired because they are the I don't know French fry guy or they are mm-hmm. the you know the action shot of milkshake spinning or something like that. Right. Um, so do you do you think it's more valuable for these students to focus on like I guess what are your opinion for for the students focusing on building up a style of their own so that they can show competence within a certain style or more imitating uh, more of a chameleon type style? Uh, I think it's definitely important to try to find your your own style, your own voice. I mm-hmm. think in trying to do that, I think mimicking other people is um, maybe it's not the work that you put out there in your portfolio, but I think it's work worth doing um, to kind of flex your creativity, to try to look at what other people are doing. And then from from a creative standpoint, try to see if you can break that down and then execute it on your own. Yeah. Um, for me, that's what, uh, especially working for kind of magazines and designers, is what they want is to be able to tell me what, what they're looking for, what they need that final product to be. Uh, and then I need to be able to execute on it without spending four hours in a studio trying to get one shot. Right, right. That makes sense. So I answered that. No, no, no. Want it, but you know, I think it's yeah. it's a good way to kind of to kind of flex your muscles, uh, kind of get outside of your own creativity. Uh, I think it's a good way to kind of break down. Um, like if you have kind of a roadblock and you're like, I just don't know what to do. Like look for somebody's work that you like and see if you can uh, recreate it. And it might not be the thing that kind of sets you off uh, in front of you know sets Instagram on fire or whatever. But sure, I think help you help you add to your tool chest. I'll be honest. I for one have never set Instagram on fire. Um, <laughs> I haven't either. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. Well, no. I think it's a really interesting way that you're phrasing that because I agree with you. Um, I think that dissecting other people's work who are also successful, figuring out what they did, how they did, to be able to uh, articulate what they did, it helps you to be able to kind of pull out of your toolbox for whenever you have to do whatever the client needs. You're like, great. I understand what you're talking about. I can pull this from here, this from here, this from here, and put them together to be to make something new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. One thing you said was that some of that work is stuff that you're not putting on your portfolio. Um, do you have clients and work that you're just like immediate? You're like, well, this is just paying the bills. Um, uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I feel like lately I've been lucky in that most of the work I've done, I've been uh, pretty proud of. Mm-hmm. I think the issue that I run into is that I do a lot of publication work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it might be one of those things where I shoot something um, and then it won't see the light of day for six months, 12 months. Um, and then by that time, I feel like um, I feel like I'm still growing in my skill set. And so a lot of times by the time it comes out, I'm still proud of it, but I feel like it's not representative of the work that I'm doing currently because mm-hmm. it's already a year old. Right, right. Um, it's a year old. So that, so that might be the only kind of situation where I was like, oh, I don't know if I'll post that one. <laughs> sure. Um, I actually love the way you said that. You said that um, you're never – it sounded like you, you said you are never just doing a job for – for the paycheck and obviously every job is not the big awesome super creative job however the approach it sounds like you're taking is that 
even though it may not be the big sexy job, there is something you're finding within it uh, that uh, still you're taking it to make it your own, regardless of how monotonous or how many times you've shot the same hamburger or something like that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like if you don't have the the energy for it, mm. um, like if you're not going to bring that same kind of level to a smaller job that you would to a big job, like you're doing a huge disservice to that smaller client. Um, and maybe it's because like I started with a, a company like flock and rally that was sure. a two person team that is now one of the, the bigger PR firms in the city. Right. Um, but like, you don't, you don't know where those people are going to go. Yeah. I say any two person team can turn into uh, a massive uh, player. And then, and then for me, like, I don't want to put out mediocre work. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that's not, that's not what uh, gets me up every day. Yeah, <laughs> no, I think, I think that's the simplest, most true answer. I mean, like, I, I, I feel the same way. I, I judge, I'm the harshest critic of my own work as well. Um, I want to make myself happy when I, when I make work. <laughs> uh, All right. Kind of yeah. Okay. So. Um, we're running on about a half an hour now. So, um, tell me or do lightning round stuff. You ready? Okay. What's the most difficult thing about freelancing? Uh, I mean, like just being your own boss. Um, like it's entirely up to you, like the successes and the failures, there might be other people to blame it on, but it ultimately comes down to, to you and whether or not you got it done. What? I think that's the hard part about jumping in and making yeah. the choice of I'm going to do this. Uh, for me, I, I always wanted to do photography. Mm -hmm. uh, and as long as it was a dream, I think I always had that possibility. Um, but as soon as you take the leap and try to make it happen, there's that very real fear that if this doesn't work, it's only because I could make it work. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's on you. Like, like putting it out into reality makes it real, which means the successes and the failures are real. The dream phase is over. Yeah, that is, uh, that's deep. Um, so what uh what do you wish somebody had told you when you first started freelancing uh that you know now uh, you don't have to do it all hmm. okay um what is one thing you wish you could never shoot again i don't think i don't think i've had that yet all right okay um what's something that you have yet to shoot that you are dying to shoot I don't know. Um, I feel like I've shot versions of things I would like to shoot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, that's a tough one. I'm going to have to think about it. <laughs> All right. Um, and last thing. Um, this is obviously going to 22 students who are about to graduate in May. Um, it looks like we are about to hit a huge recession um, mm -hmm. what, uh, what is something, uh, words of advice you could offer them? Um, your network matters a lot more than you think it does. Um, utilize the people that, you know, I feel like there's this kind of negative look at, um, kind of working with friends or, uh, using family connections. Um, but I feel like those are only bad things. If you do bad work, mm. if you use those connections and you don't deliver on it, um, but I think people take for granted just how important it is, um, unfortunately, to be likable, um, especially if you're a freelancer. Uh, just remember that people are hiring you for a service, but they're hiring you. Um, mm. So you need to be the kind of person that people want 
to work with. Um, and then on top of that, if times are slow, do what you need to do to pay the bills. Um, but you know, make time for creative work. It might not be the stuff that's going to, um, help you pay the bills right now, but it's going to help you keep building that skill set so that when, um, things warm up a little bit, that you're the one who's ready to capitalize on it and kind of make those big leaps as opposed to everybody else who was sitting on their haunches waiting on the storm to pass. And then now they're like, okay, now it's time to get back to work. If you've already been working that whole time, uh, you already have a good jump on. Them.